Well, tomorrow morning, uh, most of you, I imagine, when you get up, will no doubt take a look in the mirror. Uh, from where I'm standing now, I think all of you, I would say, look, look all right, look pretty good, but probably first thing in the morning, maybe not just so much. Which of us likes to see the ugly truth about ourselves? That our hair might be a mess, might be thinner than it used to be, grayer than it used to be, that our teeth might look more crooked or have more gaps or yellower, that our skin has a few more wrinkles, that there are bags under our eyes. It's maybe a painful experience at times to look in the mirror, but at least we can then wash our faces, we can comb the hair, what's left of it, and we can clean the teeth. Well, that's seeing the truth about ourselves in a purely physical sense. How much more when such self-examination penetrates to the depths of who we are, that beneath the surface of the skin and goes right to our hearts and minds. Despite the discomfort involved in looking at ourselves, such an exercise can be useful if in God's hand it leads us on to better things, both individually but also as a, as a church family. The mirror for this examination well, that's what happens when God's Word, serving as a mirror to see ourselves, and in particularly in James, we see many shortcomings in ourselves, yet in having these pointed out to us, we are led by God's Spirit and grace to have our ways change, to have the rough edges rubbed away. And so, let's look again in the mirror this evening. James 4, 1 to 3 teaches us the following point, that frustrated desires lead to fights and division. Frustrated desires lead to fights and division. In the church James writes to, uh, there are evidently ongoing fights and quarrels at play. We see that in those opening uh, couple of verses, fights and quarrels. We're not actually told what these are, are about. We are not told that this is, you know, they're congregation are trying to decide about the new carpet to come in and whether we should stick with the wine colored red or go with the blue. We're not told if it's to do with a rota and who's on the rota for what and when. We're not told what it is. We might think of all sorts of things that people might get into fights and quarrels about. I'm still, relatively speaking, an outsider. I don't know. Uh, hopefully, there are not too many. Uh, and yet, these can happen in congregations of Christ's church. We're not told, though, by James. Uh, and Douglas Moo, a commentator, says the fact that James does not comment directly on the issues involved suggests that his concern was more with the selfish spirit and bitterness of quarrels than with the rights and wrongs of the various viewpoints. You see, there, there may be disagreements about things, but often it's the case that of equal or even greater importance than the issue itself is how the issue is addressed between brothers and sisters. As I'm sure you've heard the saying, you can win the argument but lose uh, the friend or lose the person. So, we don't know what they are about, but we do know the source of them. The end of verse 1 tells us very clearly, your passions within you, and not only passions within, but at war within. There's an internal conflict that's working itself out externally in the church. This word we have as passions comes from the Greek word hedone, uh, and I don't normally reference the specific Greek words, but in this case you can maybe see that that's where we get our English word hedonism from. What's hedonism? 
the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence, the desire to please ourselves. And that's what this word we have as passions communicates in its context here, self-serving, self-satisfying desires. So, the source of fights and quarrels, well, self-serving, self-satisfying passions, not only do they wreak havoc between church members, but even in an individual Christian. For as I say there, it's, it's, as it says, there's a war within. And James is not the only apostle to recognize this issue in the life of the Christian. If you turn a few pages, 1 Peter 2, 11, we read, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So too, Paul, Romans 7, 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in my members I see another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, of, of Paul there, some want to say, well, this is Paul talking about the experience of a non-Christian, but a non-Christian cannot delight in the law of God. In actual fact, this is the experience of a seasoned Christian. There is an ongoing battle. Yes, we have a new heart, uh, those who are in Christ, yet nonetheless, we are assaulted continually by the world, by the devil, and by the sinful desires of our flesh. And this will continue to be the case until we are in glory. As you sit there right now as a, a Christian, yes, sin's penalty has been dealt with. Yes, sin's power, its enslaving power over you has been defeated. We are able not to sin. We are able to say no to sin. That doesn't mean we won't because it's only in glory when sin's presence will be completely at an end. And so there is this war within us that we see various places in Scripture. And that means we're back to James' overriding diagnosis of all the symptoms and maladies on display throughout the letter. We have the problem of a divided heart, what he also calls double-mindedness in chapter 1, verse 8, and as we'll see in chapter 4, verse 8 here. James writes to those whose hearts are divided and where there is a double-minded war within. So frustrated desire leads to fights and quarrels. I want. I want more than I currently have. And often it's just the case of I want what others have, whether it's their possession or their position. So picture a room full of toys. There's Lego, there's Duplo, there's diggers, there's tractors, there's dolls, there's teddies, there's a play kitchen, there's cars, there's a train set, there's Paw Patrol pups. You name it, it's in the room. And there's two children in the room, a hundred toys to play with, but you know the way of it. What's the one toy that the child wants to play with? Of course, it's the, the toy, the teddy bear, the other child has just chosen. And so begins the whinging and the whining. So a child might say, I want a teddy. Vladimir Putin might say, I want the Crimea. I want the land of Ukraine. Usually, we are somewhere in between uh, what a child might say and what Putin might say. But what is it that you want this evening? What is it when you're thinking about your life that you want? Is it the nice car? Is it the house that your neighbor has? Is it the amazing looking family holiday that your friend seems to have had from the pictures 
plastered all over social media. Though, of course, there's usually no snaps of the chaos getting through the airport with prams and car seats and everything else that needs to be got through. They don't get uploaded, only the, the nice sunny pictures on the beach. Maybe you want the promotion your colleague got over you. Maybe you want the respect that your friends' children seem to show them, and you wonder why do your children not show that to you. All these and more we might have a desire for, and some of these desires might be okay in and of themselves. There can be good and godly desires, but where this gets us is when these desires aren't met, when they are frustrated. How do you respond then, even if they are good desires? Well, James tells us plainly that it's frustrated desires that leads to fights and quarrels and division amongst God's people. When you haven't got your way, what are you going to do about it? Do you lash out? Are you vindictive? Are you selfish? Are you then, you begin to become unwilling? Maybe in the church, do you start a campaign of words, try to garner support for your view, your cause? When you don't have, will you murder? James speaks to that. Literally, someone might go to that extreme. But even in your heart, do you wish someone was dead because they've thwarted you getting your way? When you cannot uh, obtain, do you fight and quarrel? Maybe when your desires are frustrated, you try another way. You think, maybe you're a bit more pious, you think, well, I'll pray, and you'll pray about it. Well, James comes on to this idea in verse 3. You ask and do not receive. Someone's been praying, maybe asking for this, and that might remind us of, of Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 7, where Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. But Jesus did not have in mind any and every desire you might have. Rather, desires centered on God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Jesus was not commanding asking and promising the receiving of the desires or passions which we have just seen actually wage war with our souls. So verses 1 to 3 here are speaking of frustrated desires leading to fights and divisions. And we then move to verse 4 onwards, and we see that friendship with the world equals adultery against God. And verse 4, is, it's almost like someone taps you on the, uh, on the shoulder from the pew behind, and, and you turn around thinking, oh, you're, oh, who's this I can talk to? And they slap you in the face. You adulterous people, James says, you have betrayed the one who loves you and the one whom you have committed to love. This is the heart of James's letter. This is, the, this is the nerve center where all of the presenting problems are boiled down. There's no sugarcoating here. The sentence and the diagnosis is given head on. Thus far in James, uh, anytime he's addressed his, his readers, he's, he said, my brothers, or he said, my dear brothers. But now he addresses the church as you adulterous people. It's strong, it seems harsh, it seems brutal as a way of addressing people in a church. One commentator has observed this to be the most strongly worded rebuke in the New Testament. And yet, uh, those familiar with the Old Testament will recognize this imagery to be common enough, especially in the prophets. Isaiah 54, verse 5 and 6 say, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. For the Lord has called you like a wife. We have this image of God as the bridegroom 
and his people as the bride. Or uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter uh, 2, verses 20 uh, onwards, we read this. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bowels. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless for I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter 16. If you turn there, you'll see uh, it, it speaks of the Lord's faithless bride of how this young woman was raised up, was cleansed and cared for, uh, uh, beautifully adorned by the Lord. But then we read of how she trusted in her own beauty. And in verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. It's, it's throughout there. Hosea is another one. There's this prophetic sign where Hosea himself is told, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This is all hard-hitting language, graphic at times used in the Old Testament prophets to speak to God's people about their unfaithfulness before the God who loved them. And it's language used to convict them and maybe to condemn some, but language used to call them back, that they would turn in repentance and seek God afresh. That's the Old Testament. But what makes James call out the church as adulterous people? Were they visiting the red light districts? No, not necessarily. The reasons they are adulterers, he goes on to tell us in verse 4. Look at what it says. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world. It may be part of your uh, painful experience to have known a, a marriage breakdown. Maybe early on there was the jealous accusation from one spouse to another of who is this other person you've been meeting. The response might have started, oh, we're just friends. Of course, it's possible and advisable to have friends, but great care is needed, uh, and obviously the wrong sort of friendship can lead to unfaithfulness. But James is to the point with us here. Friendship with the world doesn't just lead to spiritual adultery, but equals or equates to spiritual adultery. And friendship, uh, he uses this language of friendship in the Hellenistic world of his time, was much more involved than sometimes the casual understanding of friendship in our day. I know uh, people aren't using Facebook as much anymore as Instagram and other things, but, you know, we think of Facebook, someone with 900 Facebook friends, really? Are they really uh, close friends? James here is saying friendship with the world doesn't just lead to adultery. It is adultery against God. And so we commit spiritual adultery against God 
when we have this friendship with the world. And on this subject, I came across a sermon by a minister at the time of King Charles I. Uh, he's called William Greenhill, uh, and the sermon's entitled, Stop Loving the World. It's not on this part of James, although in many ways it, it might have been. It's actually on one verse in 1 John 2.15 that tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Uh, and Greenhill in this sermon gives many reasons why as well as asking many soul-searching diagnostic questions. Uh, he says, stop loving the world. What Scripture means there, you know, he's not talking about just the fact of the heavens and the earth. Uh, he's talking about how the language in First John and in James refers to the customs and fashions of the world, the things the world sees as having splendor and glory. Stop loving the world is another way of saying stop worshiping the world and its ways as in you've given yourself over to it. And he outlines different ways. I'll just give you some of the headings uh, which he develops uh, as he goes through. Ways in which we actually love the world. When we highly esteem it, when we see it as important, the ways of the world, the thinking of the world, the intellect of the world, when we see that as what's of highest value. Uh, when our thoughts are fixed on it, when we naturally think about the things that we love and there's even a test maybe as we sit and worship, are our minds wandering, thinking about what's ahead in the week, thinking about the things we'd like to do or the things we, we plan to do, uh, when our thoughts are fixed on it, when we desire things of the world, when we desire positions, worldly positions and possessions, setting our hearts on them. And when obviously some of these things are okay in and of themselves, but where does that desire lead us? He talks about a way we love the world when most of our energies are spent on it or about, about acquiring the things of the world. When we favor it, when we mourn and lament when the things of the world are taken from us. And then he gives reasons not to love the world. He, he says we have a higher calling. There is a higher throne uh, than the, the thrones of this world. We will be called out of this world into another and so that's a reason not to love this world just the here and now. He gives another reason. He says it's unreasonable uh, because it moves us from things that are certain to things that are merely probable. Uh, he says that we cannot keep the world or its goods without fear of losing it. And so it's unreasonable. Even if we can keep them, they will not satisfy our souls. Another reason he gives not to love the world, he says it's scandalous. If we are Christians, we are actually distinctive different from the world. But if we're just like the non-Christians around us, that is scandalous to what Christ has done for us and to us. We're called by our good deeds to adorn the gospel of God we profess. As Matthew 5 says, we're to let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. If we are worldly, we are like those Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3, who having a form of godliness deny its power. Will our friends, our neighbors say, these Christians, I thought they were supposed to be different, but they're just as covetous as any. I don't know what good it is to be a Christian if your man's just like me. It's idolatrous is another reason. We make the world an idol. God has given us good gifts to enjoy, but we worship the created things rather than the creator. It's dangerous uh, you, can't, you can't have your eyes on both heaven and earth and walk properly. Little by little, we divert ourselves from God and Christ 
and the church. And maybe as you sit here now, maybe in years gone by, there might have been far more people sitting here on a Sunday evening. And yet sometimes we just want to say, well, sure, a little bit will do me. Uh, and we become distracted and diverted. We grow acquainted with the world's ways of doing things, its tricks and its schemes, and it hardens us. It, it deals with the impossible. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot think that it is okay to love God and love the world. As we've been seeing, as it says here in James, uh, to think that you can love the world is to actually be in enmity with God. And it is hostile to godliness. The world is a great enemy to growth and grace and communion with God, for the things of the world divert the heart from spiritual things. Greenhill does have a section on how we can relate appropriately with the world because our calling is not to go out and build a tower and be a monk and think we can just uh, be in a mo monastery as if that would be right or that would work. He then goes on to offer questions, and, and these are questions which I think we can use to examine our hearts, even in this passage we're looking at in James. He asks these questions, and ask them of yourself. Am I more concerned about the things of the world than I am for heaven and spiritual things? Does the world push aside and cut out the things that are of God? Do the things of the world jostle the wall of the things of God? Am I content with a little when it comes to matters of the soul? He asks, is, is just a little grace, just a little knowledge of God, just a little communion with God okay with you? There's been times where I've met people, uh, and some in, in many ways very impressive uh, people, uh, who have uh, put in so much time and effort and energy uh, to, to, to get a career in a certain field that's required all sorts of exams and courses and training, and there seems to be such attention and care uh, put in to achieving a career, and yet sometimes I've met people in the same person, there seems to be a contentment to have no more than just a child's Sunday school knowledge of God. But even as I say that, I question myself as one who, in a sense, is devoted to, to, to be a student of the Scriptures, uh, to be one who's an unashamed workman, correctly handling the word of truth, and yet even myself think, oh, sure, you know, I can go and do something else. I might be reading more reading Scripture, reading uh, great books which are going to unpack the details of Scripture, unpack the knowledge of God even more, and yet sometimes I'm not sure my desire would just go and watch something, some meaningless, trivial thing. So I even question myself there. I wonder, do you ever question, am I content with a little when it comes to matters of the soul, or do I have that hunger, that longing for more of God? And another question, in what do I find most sweetness and contentment? Do I use questionable or unlawful means to get the world? Do I neglect lawful and unquestionable means that would get me heaven and spiritual things? Do I love ideas, learning, wisdom, talents, and things of this nature? Am I more grieved over the loss of outward worldly things than I am for the loss of spiritual things? Greenhill himself faced the loss of worldly things when King Charles ordered, that, uh, I'm not that familiar with it, it was called the Book of Sports, and he actually ordered this to be read in the churches at the time, uh, and it, it encouraged the breaking of the Sabbath, and Greenhill in good conscience could uh, not do this, and so he was ejected from his church 
and at the time, no doubt, a generous income. Uh, This happened long before he preached this sermon, and yet he doesn't mention it, Uh, though from that we can know he speaks from experience about the call to put to death the desires of the flesh and the love for the world. Or as Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What James means by friendship with the world is what he has already spoken of. It's centered on the desires of our hearts. What do we really want? What do you really want? Power, position, possessions, respect, admiration, recognition. Are these the things we see as truly desirous, truly lovely, rather than with the psalmist, how lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? That we would see that, that being in the Lord's presence is the loveliest thing, that being with the Lord's people is the loveliest thing. Instead, we want to flirt with the world. And it is such a problem, uh, verse 5, this strong condemnation, you adulterous people. And the reason it's such a problem, we're told, verse 5, God is a jealous God, a God who demands total, unreserved, unwavering, undivided allegiance from the people he has joined himself to. And so, verse 4, as as I said, comes as a slap in the face, telling us there's a big problem for us as a church. Verse 5 starts to show God moving towards us in jealousy, but it's verse 6 which begins with that wonderful little word. We've just been told the adulterous people, a massive problem highlighted, and then verse 6 begins, but, but, but he gives more grace. And in these final few verses, verses 6 to 10, we see that God is is challenging us through James with these warnings, with this strong language, uh, as a warning to us to come back to him, to not continue down that path of worldliness, of double-mindedness, of having a divided heart. It's, it's a warning to us. It's actually a gracious invitation from God. It's supposed to get our attention so that we do not ignore it. I don't know about you, but there was supposed to be a, a warning alarm. Does your phone go off today? Mine didn't go off. I don't know. I must have those alarms turned off. But, you know, that was maybe it was a bit of annoying to get that buzz through. Uh, and that, uh, the reason this has been done, is a sort of a safety drill for if down the line some major incident should happen, some disaster should happen so that you can be warned, so that you can take action if something's going on. That's the purpose of it, an annoying buzz on your phone, but the intention behind it is to warn you. And these verses, though they come so strongly, you adulterous people, we then quickly see that this is God's gracious way to get his people's attention. And it's an amazingly gracious thing because if you think about the charge, adultery, if you think about any sin, maybe you commit against your spouse if you're married, it might be a small thing, and usually it's the person who's in the wrong. It's, it's up to them to make moves, to try and reconcile. Maybe there's cheap efforts you could try, a bunch of flowers, a box of chocolates, whatever it might be. You try to bring a peace offering. You try to, uh, to move towards the person who's got no time for you because of what you've said or done or not done. And yet with God, it's the other way around. It's the wronged party who makes the move who 
because of who he is as the holy and righteous judge, as the end of the passage talks about, the one who is able to both save and to destroy. He is the one who moves towards his people. And this is his moving towards you tonight in whatever sin, whatever worldliness you have maybe uh, took a step towards, maybe you're a few steps down that road. God this evening through this passage is calling you back to him. He is jealous for his people, for their undivided uh, allegiance. And so he calls you back to him tonight. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, Think back to what we read in Psalm 51, uh, and and there's similar language here. Uh, This cleansing of hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, be wretched and mourn and weep. We're called to humble ourselves before God. We're called to recognize our sin for what it is. We're not called to excuse it. You know, sometimes we apologize to other people, and in many ways, the apology is disingenuous. We say, I'm sorry if you feel bad about such and such. We're not actually taking responsibility for our actions. Uh, Or sometimes you hear someone say, oh, sorry, but, and then there's an excuse or a reason why the thing happened. And so we need to take ownership of our sins not sorry but, not sorry if, not, oh, because of circumstances, I was tired, whatever it is. God is calling us to take ownership of our sins, to recognize them for what they are, how problematic they are, this love for the world, and we're called to humble ourselves before the Lord. And when we do that, when we recognize, when we recognize our sin for what it is, when we're humbled by it, when we bow before God and ask for a cleansed heart, purified heart, when we mourn for our sin, then we have this amazing truth that he will exalt you as we bow down before him, before his mercy seat. He will exalt us. He will raise us up. As verse 6 says, he gives more grace. He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Amen. Well, let's pray.